of the oldest surviving documents from Christian history is a letter that was written sometime during the second century. We don't actually know who wrote the letter, though it was likely some Christian bishop, but we do know the name of the person to whom it was addressed, a man called Diognetus. And we also know the purpose of the letter. It is an attempt to explain and defend the Christian faith to the outside Roman world. And one of the ways that the author does this is by explaining to this Diognetus how Christians try to model their lives on the pattern of God himself. And then he goes on to explain what that means. For happiness, he says, for happiness is not a matter of lording it over one's neighbors or desiring to have more than weaker men or possessing wealth and using force against one's inferiors. These things are alien to God's greatness. But whoever takes upon himself his neighbor's burden, whoever wishes to benefit another who is worse off, whoever provides to those in need things that he has received from God, and thus becomes a God to those who receive them, this one is an imitator of God. Today, this sounds rather strange. We don't often talk about imitating God. But that really wouldn't have been that strange to Diognetus. Lots of people in the world of ancient Greece and Rome thought and talked about imitating the gods. What would have been strange, though, is just what kind of activities were being described as, as godlike activities. Taking upon yourself the burden of your neighbor, caring for those less fortunate, forsaking wealth and power. If Diognetus were a Roman like other Romans, he would have been shocked to hear that this is what Christians thought of as admirable or especially godlike behavior. Sacrificing your own well-being to, to serve a person in need? Since when was that godlike? Certainly doesn't describe the character of gods like Jupiter or Mars or Apollo. And it certainly wasn't the kind of behavior that would have been widely admired in the Roman world. So where did these ideas come from? Well, it seems that we may actually be given a clue to that question in chapter 13 of John's Gospel. For it is there in John 13 that Jesus gives his disciples a new commandment. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus says that this is a new commandment, but you've got to ask, what exactly is new about it? Isn't this the same ethic that the Bible teaches elsewhere? To quote St. Augustine, the Lord Jesus declares that he is giving his disciples a new commandment. However, was this not already commanded in the ancient law of God, where it is written, you shall love your neighbor as yourself? Why does the Lord then call this a new commandment when it is old? Augustine's answer to that question is an interesting one. He says that what's new about this commandment isn't Jesus' admonition to love other people. What's new is the sort of love that Jesus prescribes for his followers, which he clarifies with that phrase in verse 34, just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. 
The love that Jesus commands isn't any kind of love. It's a love that follows the pattern of his own life. Do what I do, Jesus is saying. Be like me. That's what this new commandment comes down to. And that's why the letter to Diognetus says what it does about imitating God by, by selflessly and sacrificially loving those in need. Because remember, in John's gospel, whatever is true of Jesus' character is also true of the character of God. It was only a couple chapters earlier when Jesus had said to his followers, I and the Father are one. And only one chapter after this, in chapter 14, will he tell them, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, St. Paul says that God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the delight of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, John doesn't put it in those precise words, but that's the basic message that he's getting across. To see the face of Jesus is to see nothing less than the glory of God. So when Christians talk about imitating God, they're not talking about Jupiter or Mars or Apollo or any other supposed God. They're thinking about Jesus himself. The person of Jesus is the pattern of God for Christians. So to imitate God is to do this new commandment, to love as Jesus loved. Well, that all sounds very nice, of course, but it's a pretty high order. Just as he has loved us, that's how we're to love one another? How in the world is that possible? Well, again, this chapter in the Gospel of John has something to teach us. If you pay attention, you'll notice that Jesus' command to love one another comes soon after he gives a practical demonstration of that love in his washing of the disciples' feet. Now, you've probably read this story before, and you're probably already familiar with some of the details of what happens. And Jesus dresses himself in the garb of a household servant, and he begins to wash his disciples' feet at dinner. It's a shocking action. Few other things were more menial, more lowly at that time than washing a person's feet. It was a task that was carried out only by the lowest servant in a household. Is it any wonder that when he gets to Peter, that Peter just objects to it entirely, and he says Jesus will never wash his feet? Peter recognized what a servile position Jesus was taking, and he thought it scandalous. How could his master adopt the role of a household slave? But what makes this scene even more remarkable is that when we remember this is no mere rabbi washing the feet of his pupils, this is, as John has told us, this is the very word of God, the one who was with God in the beginning, the one who is God, the one through whom all things were created. And that makes it even more incredible. As one 4th century Christian bishop put it, what is more amazing than this? What is more laudable? The one who wraps himself in light as with a garment girds himself with a towel. The one who gathers the waters of the sea as in a bottle pours water into a basin. The one who measures the waters with his hand and heaven with a span and all the earth by a handful cleanses the feet of his servants with his spotless hands. 
the one to whom every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth bows his neck to his servants. Angels saw it and were astonished. Heaven observed it and shuddered. The created world witnessed it and was terrified. When Jesus spoke of a new commandment, that's what he had in mind. The command to love your neighbor in and of itself, that wasn't new. What was new was the pattern that Jesus gave, that his act of washing the disciples' feet, that, that was just one symbolic example of the kind of sacrificial love and service that characterizes the whole of Jesus' life and really that finally culminates in his death on the cross. As one scholar puts it, foot washing, a service that a slave can be expected to render to a master, foreshadows and interprets Jesus' death. Because as Jesus performs the service of a slave on the cross, he will die the death of a slave. Even as he willingly washes his disciples' feet, so he willingly lays down his life for them. So again, that's what was new about the commandment Jesus gave to his followers. It wasn't just the instruction that they should love one another. It's the form that their love should take. If you want to follow me, Jesus is saying, then you too have to be willing to take up the position of a slave. You need to be ready to let go of concerns about your own honor and your own rights. Forget about what people owe you. Instead, you've got to be able to prioritize the interests and the good of others more than your own, no matter what it costs you. If you want to follow me, Jesus is saying, then you've got to be willing to take the position of a slave too. You have to be ready to let go of concerns about your own honor or your own rights. Forget about what people owe you for a change. Instead, you've got to prioritize the interests and the goods of other people more than your own, no matter what it costs you. And of course, putting it like that may not seem very helpful. In fact, it may just make Jesus' commandment seem entirely impractical. Because after all, who can love in this way? Sure, every now and then you hear about some saintly person like Mother Teresa or Amy Carmichael, someone who seems to have given up everything for those in need. But what about the rest of us? How in the world can an ordinary person follow after this example, that thing that Theophilus the bishop said made the whole earth and heaven shudder and were astonished? How is love like that possible for us? Well, I think that John actually gives us a good clue to that question. Notice how John introduces this whole event at the beginning of the chapter. He starts off by telling us that it's the feast of the Passover and that the time of Jesus' death is approaching. And then he talks about how Jesus loves those who belong to him. And then he mentions that Judas is also present that night and that he's already actively planning to betray Jesus. Uh, we often forget that, you know. Jesus didn't just wash Peter's feet. He also washed Judas's feet. But then in verse 3, John tells us something very interesting about Jesus's mindset. Well, what does he say? Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, 
and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Why does John mention what was going on in Jesus' mind at that moment? You could interpret this in several ways. Maybe it just suggests that Jesus' reason for washing his disciples' feet is that he knows he's about to return to his father and so he doesn't have much time left. So now it seems is the time for a, a grand symbolic gesture to demonstrate his love. At least you might think that when you first read this verse, but that doesn't really explain it. Because John doesn't just say that Jesus knows he is about to return to God. He also says that he knows that he came from God and that God the Father had given all things into his hands. But why mention this? The best explanation, I think, is the one given by Martin Luther in a treatise that he wrote in the year 1520 entitled The Freedom of a Christian. In that treatise, Luther was talking about the sacrificial love that Jesus displayed as he was washing his disciples' feet that night. And he was asking the question, how was, how was Jesus able to love people so selflessly? And how is it possible for Christians to follow his example? And the answer that Luther came to is that what enabled Jesus to love so sacrificially was exactly his confidence and his security in who he was as the beloved son of the Father. In other words, it was precisely because Jesus knew that his Father had given everything to him, because he knew the intimate love of his Father that he had come from and that he was returning to, because he was so fully confident in his father's love, he didn't have to be concerned about himself. He didn't have to insist on getting recognition from other people or having his needs met. Jesus knew who he was and all of his needs were already met. And that's what gave him the ability, the freedom, as Luther put it, to get up from the table and dress himself like a slave and wash the grime off his disciples' feet. And it's that same freedom, Luther says, it's that same freedom that is what makes it possible for Christians to follow his example and actually obey this new commandment that Jesus gave them. Because, by faith, Christians can have the same mindset that Jesus had that night. In his letter to the Ephesians, St. Paul says something that is true for all Christians. He says that at one time we were trapped in sin and estranged from God. But God, he says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If you believe what Paul says, then that means you are in the same position Jesus was that night. You know that you are loved by God. You know that you will be with him when you die. And you know that all things have been given into your hands. Everything that was true for Jesus is also true for you. And so, just like Jesus, you don't have to worry about whether you're loved or struggle to get the recognition you think you deserve, or spend your time and energy 
making sure that you have everything you want and need. If you're a Christian, then all of that has been taken care of for you. So now you are actually free, free to stop thinking about yourself, free to take on the posture of a servant, free to love in the same way that Jesus loved. As Luther himself put it, from faith thus flow forth love and joy in the Lord, and from love a joyful, willing, and free mind that serves one's neighbor willingly and takes no account of gratitude or ingratitude, of praise or blame, of gain or loss. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus gave a new commandment to his followers, to love one another as he had loved them. It's hard to overstate just how revolutionary an ethic this was in the culture of Jesus's day. But Jesus didn't just tell his followers to love. He also gave them the freedom to do so.